Well, that was uh, good singing, good singing time this morning. Worship to the Lord and singing is always a blessing. <clears throat> Let me say we're so glad to have you all here today. And uh, I want to say a special, special uh, word to those that are visiting today. We're glad that you're here. And there's a little thing on the side of the bulletin that you could fill out if you'd like to do that. And just put it in the offering box or give it to someone. They'll get it to me. We're glad that you're here. Turn with me to John chapter 2. <clears throat> For the last four weeks, we have we had looked at the first miracle that Jesus performed at the wedding in Cana. We have the we have the privilege of studying God has given us the opportunity to study the life of Christ in this most remarkable gospel written by the apostle John. Now the life of Christ can be studied in lots of ways in the, through the gospels. Uh, for example, if we studied the gospel of Matthew, we would study Jesus life as the king of the Jews, the king of Israel. If we studied his life through Mark's gospel, we would see him there as the suffering servant. If we studied it from Luke's gospel, we would see him identified as the perfect son of man. But when we come to John's gospel, and this was very difficult when I thought I'd study the life of Christ. I mean, I originally thought I'd just study it through all the Gospels and sort of synopticize them. But that, that was so daunting that uh, I chose the Gospel of John because it's in the Gospel of John that we see Jesus viewed as the divine Son of God. God in the flesh. Living among people. At our last place in this gospel, we saw Jesus at the wedding at Cana, the miracle of changing the water into wine. It points to the fact that Jesus, through a divine act, created wine out of water. It also points to Jesus as the one who demonstrated or actually performed the creation from the Genesis account. For John tells us that he was in the beginning and all things were created by him and there's nothing that exists that was not created by him. So the creator of Genesis is the Savior, the Messiah of John's gospel. It points to Jesus as the one who has the ability in creative power to take the dead spirits of sinful men and create them into new living spiritual beings. This is what the Apostle Paul speaks of in 2 Corinthians 5 when he writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. These acts of 
these acts of creating something into something else are seen throughout the scriptures. In fact, in Exodus chapter 7, we see where Moses turned the water of the river Nile into blood. Destroying the life flow of the Egyptians. But in Jesus' account, he turned the water into wine, bringing blessing and benefit to others, not destruction. Moses was the lawgiver. John 1.17 says the, the law came through Moses. The Apostle Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.16 that the letter, which is the law, kills But the Spirit gives life. So it is just the same as we see here in this first miracle that Jesus is the life. He he demonstrates life. That life is found in Himself. John chapter 1 verse 4 says, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. So the wine was a symbol of gladness and newness of life that is found in Christ under the new covenant. The miracle, this miracle, like all the miracles that Jesus performed, were there and to reveal His person, to manifest His glory, and cause His disciples to believe in Him. The miracles that we see in John's gospel are there for that purpose. They're not there so that the the world would see them. They're there so that his people would see them and believe. There are seven miracles that we find in the gospel of John up through chapter 11. The first is the changing of water to wine in chapter 2. The second is the healing of the royal official's servant in chapter 4. Third is the healing of the lame man in chapter 5. Then there's the feeding of the 5,000 in chapter 6. Then there's walking on the water in chapter 6 as well, which is not necessarily called a sign, but it is for the benefit of his disciples. There was no one else that saw that miracle. The healing, and then there's the healing of the man, the man that was born blind in chapter 9 and the raising of Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. Now it says at the end of this first miracle that Jesus, that, that Jesus did that his disciples believed in him. This is not an initial belief of salvation that he's speaking of for they had already savingly believed in him. From chapter 1, verses 35 to 51, we see that they believed in Him. And they followed Him. Their faith from chapter 1 was active. So what we see in chapter 2, when it says they believed in Him, was a strengthening of the faith that they already had. And that's very appropriate for us. For there's not a day goes by. That you and I don't need to be strengthened in the faith that we have in Christ. Because we are weary, pitiful creatures whose faith is up and down 
in and out like the waves and the tides of the sea. And so every day we need to be strengthened in our faith. It was true of them, it's true of us. It also says at the end of chapter, uh, or at the end of that section, in verse 11, that he manifested his glory. And I didn't touch on that last time, and I just want to touch on it here, just briefly. The glory that John speaks of, in verse 11, is the manifestation of any of the divine acts or attributes that Jesus did before the eyes of people. He demonstrated his glory. But it is only the disciples that actually see it as glory. It was also so that his disciples would have a proper opinion about him. Most of the people at this wedding were ignorant of the display of glory that took place. Kostenberger writes, Though benefiting from Jesus' physical provision, the wedding guests were untouched by Jesus' messianic self-revelation. They didn't see him as the Messiah. In fact, it was the disciples and the servants only that knew what had happened. And it's a remarkable thing now that anyone who picks this book up and reads this account can see the glory of the Lord in this account. So now everyone can see it. It was hidden then, but now it is open to the entire world to see the glory of Christ. And in supernaturally seeing it, they believe. Which was what the purpose of it was in the beginning. And so they believe, they rest their confidence in the promises that he makes and in who he is. That brings us to the next part of John's narrative here, beginning in chapter 12, or chapter 2, verse 12, beginning in verse 12. We see a change in location. Follow with me from chapter uh, 2, verse 12. After this, after the wedding, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples And they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons. And the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple. With the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written of him. Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. 
When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken to them. In In verse 12, we see that he leaves Cana and goes to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum would become the base of our Lord's public ministry in Galilee. Capernaum was a village on the north shore, the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. It was a place of commerce and a place of fishing trade. It was a very important place in the culture of that area. The name Capernaum means village of comfort. It was strategically situated, connecting the region with Damascus, which was a major place of, or port of import and commerce in that time. Capernaum was also a Roman taxing and polling station where Jesus It was the place where Jesus called Matthew in chapter 9 of Matthew's gospel. It was in this little village that Jesus lived and launched his ministry. In fact, Matthew chapter 4 verse 13 states that Jesus actually lived in Capernaum. It says in in verse 13, And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. It was in Capernaum that Peter, Andrew, James, and John were called to leave their fishing profession, leave their nets, and follow Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. Many of the miracles that Jesus did were in this village, Capernaum. It was there that he healed the daughter of Jairus, who was, whose daughter had died. It was there that he fed the 5,000. It was there that the miracle of fish were caught when Jesus told Peter to throw the net on the other side of the boat. It was there that the demon-possessed man was healed. Jesus' mother-in-law was healed. It was there that he healed the paralytic. It was there that he healed the centurion's servant. It was there that the woman who had a blood disease touched the hem of his garment and was healed. It was there that the man with the paralyzed hand was likely also healed at Capernaum. All of these miracles took place in Capernaum. It was a place of major import in the life and ministry of Christ. Now, as the disciples and Jesus and his his, uh, earthly family left Cana and headed towards Capernaum, one can only imagine the fullness that was in their hearts as they journeyed toward Capernaum, basking in the glory uh, that had been revealed to them. At the wedding of Cana. Mary and her other children. Jesus brothers and sisters. Were with them. 
and apparently at this point were friendly toward him. That would change later on. And they would call him one who had lost his mind. He's crazy. But at least here they are with him. This period of Jesus' ministry is sometimes called the year of obscurity. Because, or the year of the early Judean ministry, which goes through chapter 4 of John's Gospel, verse 45. This is the year that is not spoken of by the synoptic writers. Matthew, Mark, and Luke say nothing about this early, this first year of the early Judean or minister or Galilean ministry. And so, Sometimes, because of that, it's called the year of obscurity. But Jesus is not obscure during this time. He is very active. And though he is not famous as yet, he is still carrying on a ministry. His public ministry is not yet in view here, but he is just starting out. The synoptics are silent. And so when John writes these things, it is the only place that we see this this information. So when did it begin? Uh, when it did begin, it didn't take long for fame, his fame to uh, begin to be noised abroad. So look at Mark chapter 1 with me. Turn back to Mark chapter 1, if you would. <clears throat> this is more of an introductory um, introductory sermon on this passage than it is an exposition of the passage as a whole, <clears throat> although we will do some some of that. Mark chapter 1, now this is not the same time frame as John chapter 2, but notice what it says, beginning at verse 21, and they went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Now, that's, that's an interesting statement in itself, which we, which we won't dive into. But just to say that, that Jesus is teaching differently than they're used to hearing someone teach. He has authority, and he uses the scriptures as the authority for his teaching. It was during this time in the in the synagogue at Capernaum that Jesus he cast an unclean spirit, a demon, out of a man that was there. Picking up at verse twenty-seven, and they were all amazed, so that they questioned in themselves, saying, "What is this?" A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Something they had not seen previous to this. And at once, verse 28, and at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And this was the start of his Galilean ministry from that point didn't take long for his fame to go out to the people of the area after it was told what had happened in the synagogue. 
So then this is where we pick up now with the verse 13 and the Passover of the Jews being at hand. Jesus is at Capernaum and he leaves Capernaum and he goes to Jerusalem. Now there are five divisions of this portion of John's gospel through chapter 4 of the early Judean ministry or the year of obscurity as we called it. There is the cleansing of the temple with its further effect that we're going to look at here over this week and next week for sure. Maybe not next week, but the following. There is also the, the conversation with Nicodemus from chapter 3. And then there's Jesus in Judea and the testimony, the last testimony of John the Baptist. Then we find in chapter 4, Jesus in Samaria and then Jesus in Galilee. <clears throat> now in these divisions, and we'll follow them just like that. We see Jesus shows and confirms his deity as the Messiah in three distinct ways. In chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, he shows his devotion and affection for reverence. That's what we'll see in this whole story about him going to the temple. Second, He discloses his ability of resurrection in verses 18 to 22. And then finally he reveals his understanding of the truth about man in verses 23 to 25. I want you to notice the word Passover because it's found many times throughout the scripture. The word Passover is a from a Hebrew word that means Jehovah will pass. It was most, it was the most important yearly feast and observance of the Jews. It was commemorated and it commemorated the deliverance of the Israelites from Egyptian bondage. We see they were in bondage in Exodus chapter 12. All of the plagues that God brought upon the Egyptians were finished except for one. The last plague was the death of the firstborn of all the Egyptians. And God told Moses to tell the children of Israel to wipe the blood across the post and the lintel of their doors. And when he came through, with the death angel came through, he would pass over those houses, which is what they did. And God killed all of the firstborn of all the Egyptians that night. It was celebrated on the 14th day of Nisan, which is... March, April in our calendar, lambs were slaughtered and the Passover meal or the Seder meal, which we have seen done here several times, uh, was eaten. And it was a very important thing to eat the, the Seder meal because the Jews still do that. Orthodox Jews still have the Seder meal uh, as it was given to them in ancient times. Messianic Jews understand what the Seder meal means. And that's how we saw it displayed the last time we had it here. And we'll have it again maybe in a year or so. It consisted of a list of things to remind the Jewish people that they had been rescued from the bondage in Egypt. 
It started with a prayer of thanksgiving by the head of the house and the drinking of the first cup of wine. The other cups were emptied as the feast proceeded. Then there was the eating of bitter herbs that was a reminder of the bitter slavery and the bondage that they suffered in Egypt. Then there was the son's inquiry. Why is this night distinguished from all other nights? And there would be the father's reply, either narrated or read by the father. Then there was the singing of the first part of the Hallel, which was Psalm 113 and 14, and the washing of hands. Then they would carve and eat the lamb together with the unleavened bread. The lamb was eaten in commemoration of what the father's had been commanded to do in the night before, they, the night that the firstborn of Egyptians were, were killed, and God delivered his people. We find that in Exodus 12 and 13. Then there was the eating of unleavened bread. Unleavened bread is just bread that doesn't rise, has no yeast in it. Yeast in scripture is always seen as, uh, typified as sin. So there was no, there was no yeast in the bread. It, in, it was an emblem of the purity. They were to eat this bread. They were to journey, be ready to go and make haste as they ate the bread eaten by their ancestors. The continuation of the meal, each one, each one ate as much as they liked, but the lamb was always eaten last, finished last. And then the last thing was the singing of the Hallel from Psalm 115 to 118, and the meal ended. All of this would have taken place in this interim of the few days as the Passover began and Jesus, it says, went up to Jerusalem. Now the city of Jerusalem at this time was ready for the Passover. And it says that Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now if you look at a map of the a map of the region, you find that Jerusalem is south. It's way down near the Dead Sea. And Capernaum was north. It was way north uh, at the top of the Sea of Galilee. So if we were looking at a map, if I said to you, I'm going to go down to Bemidji, you would say, wait a minute, no, you're going to go up to Bemidji. Or I'm going to go up to Shakopee. No, no, you're going to go down to Shakopee. That's because we are so used to looking at places with their relation on a map. And so we say, I'm going to go, I'm going to go up. I could easily say, my wife and I are going to take a trip up to North Carolina. And it would be right to say that if I were thinking only about the topography of the place and not the geography of it. And that's what is happening here. Some have tried to use this to say, oh, you see, the Bible's not accurate. Uh, he, he didn't go up to Jerusalem. He had to have gone down to Jerusalem. 
But he's not talking about the geographical location and its relation to north and south. He is talking about the topographical region of Jerusalem. Jerusalem had an elevation of almost 2,500 feet. It's set in in a mountain area. Capernaum was only like 680 feet. So when Jesus left Capernaum and went up to Jerusalem, he literally went up in elevation. And that's exactly what the scriptures say here. He went up to Jerusalem. As soon as he reached Jerusalem, he went to the temple. Now, this is sometimes called the cleansing of the temple, and it certainly was in in a sense a cleansing of it. But there are actually two cleansings of the temple. But the synoptics only, Matthew, Mark, and Luke only record one. They only record the last cleansing of the temple. This is the first cleansing. The others took place later at the end of Jesus' ministry. So it's, I think, I find it interesting that Jesus begins his ministry by cleansing the temple at the beginning and at the end. Turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Jesus had been at this temple before. And we find the, the, we find the proof of it here in Luke chapter 2. Now notice verse 41. Now his parents, that would be Mary and Joseph. Joseph is alive at this time. Jesus is probably, Jesus is 12 years old. Verse 41, now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among the relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him where? In the temple. Sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Can you imagine losing a child, not knowing where they are for the space of four days? (coughs) And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be about my father's house? And they did not know that I would be in my father's house. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them to Nazareth and was submissive to them. I get this last line. His mother treasured up all these things in her heart. 
I think this is one of the reasons that Mary said to the servants at the wedding, just do whatever he tells you. He's all about his father's business. Just do whatever he says. And then the miracles took place. And now they're leaving the disciples, his mother. Her heart is full. Their hearts are full. They come to Jerusalem with expectation of God doing something at the Passover. They're going to worship. The city of Jerusalem would have been brimming with people. At this time, it would have been like going to the state fair when it's shoulder to shoulder. Jews from every part of Israel and the Roman world would make their way to Jerusalem for the Passover. And like any event of that size, there would be merchants who would make do business and it would be big business. As they came to this religious observance. Excuse me. (coughs) If you recall. On the day of Pentecost. Which was. 50 days after. The Passover. Peter. And the other disciples preached to a very large crowd of Jews who were there after the Passover had in, had uh, had ended. 3,000 plus women and children. That's a lot of people. I can't even imagine preaching to that many people. It was common for these merchants to sell their wares to those who were poor and could not afford more expensive offerings like lambs. They would sell oxen or <clears throat> or sheep or doves to the poor. It was a it was a necessary thing because the poor could not gather together things the offerings to take for the Passover. The problem is that they were dishonest in their sales. They inflated their sales and the prices took advantage of the poor, creating greater hardship on them because it was necessary to bring an offering to the Passover. Not only that, but the temple court, more more properly called the court of the Gentiles, was a large outer area. If you were standing in the outer court, the court of the Gentiles, you would look and you would see the temple proper uh, towering in the middle of the of the whole area. Sometimes you see, you've if you've seen pictures of the Temple Mound in Jerusalem, you'll look and you'll see the dome of of Omar, the Mosque of Omar there, and the golden top of that dome sitting there. That's on top of the temple area. The temple that was built there was in the center of that. The Mosque of Omar is over on the on the side 
right now. When Jesus stepped into this place, it resembled a stockyard instead of a place of worship. The smell and the filth must have been disgusting. Can you imagine? It was a confined area and you've got animals and and You know it's kind of ironic because the Jews considered the Gentiles to be unclean. They were they were called dogs. <clears throat> And this was the only place that the Gentiles, a Gentile could come into. They could not enter into the other parts of the temple. Only Jews could go in there. And the Jews looked at the Gentiles as unclean. And here they are, selling animals for sacrifice, robbing the people. And not only that, <clears throat> but they were profaning the temple of God. But, as usual, in most places, money money is more important than convictions and beliefs. That brings back memories. I've had people approach me about certain things uh, about Bethany Church that they didn't particularly like. And when I explained to them why we do what we do, and they still didn't like it, many of them, now this is, get this, many of them said, well, then you don't, you don't need my offerings then, do you? As though I would buckle and acquiesce to them just to get their money. You know what we told them? We told them, no, we don't need your money. God supplies what we need. And he has his people who give freely because they love him, not because they want something to be the way they want it to be. There were also the money changers that were there. <clears throat> Every male had to pay an annual temple tax which was established in Exodus chapter 30. It was, a, it was a biblical thing. This tax was the same tax that Jesus paid for, for himself and Peter when he told Peter to go and put a hook in the water and the first fish you catch, it'll be a coin in its mouth, you take that coin, which was a shekel, and you pay our tax for me and for you. Remember that story? From Matthew chapter 17. The Roman currency of the day was the normal money used. But Roman currency was not very pure. It's sort of like our coins today are. I remember as a kid uh, getting Ben Franklin 50 cent pieces. If you ever had one. Some of you young people may not even know that there was such a thing. There was a, a 50 cent piece. It was bigger than a quarter. had a picture of Benjamin Franklin on it. And it was very near, when I was a kid, they were very near pure silver. But as time went along, and quarters were that way too, 
As time went along, <clears throat> the, the money was mixed with, with other metals that were not as pure as silver. And so little by little, even though a quarter is still 25 cents, that quarter doesn't buy what it used to buy years ago when it was <clears throat> more pure silver. This is the way it was with Roman coin. It was mixed with other things. It wasn't gold and all gold or, or silver. <clears throat> it was mixed. And so it wasn't worth as much. But the Hebrew money, the Jewish money, was more pure in its relation to the precious metals. And so the money changers would come. And as people brought in Roman coins or other coins from other places, they would change that money for Jewish coin, which was what you had to give in the temple. The temple didn't receive Roman currency. I remember going to, when we went to Australia the first time, uh, we brought American money with us. And we had to exchange that for Australian currency. And I was astounded at what they charged just to change money from one currency to another. This was what was happening. Jewish currency being changed from Roman currency brought a hefty penalty with it, 12.5% exchange fee. This service was corrupted and exploited exploited the people. It had become a part of the religious system of the day. And in essence, these merchants, these money changers were robbing people and using the worship of God as a platform for personal gain. <clears throat> it was as corrupt as any politician's re-election fund is today. In the second cleansing of the temple, in Matthew 21, Jesus said, much to much the same scene as this, He said this, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer. You have made it a den of robbers. <clears throat> no doubt the priests got kickbacks from the sales and the trades. And so Annas and his Cohorts were getting rich as well. I want to say something to that. Any so-called preacher of the gospel that has as his main emphasis money being given, you better steer clear from and run away from. Because I'm telling you, they are corrupt and they're not telling you the truth. I just read the other day that Creflo Dollar said that God would not bless anyone who did not give to his ministry. Mm. This is not what the, the temple was for. It's not what the church is for. When we come into this building, we gather as the church of Christ. 
We are here for one reason. And that reason is to worship our God. In the spirit of holiness and reverence. So many in our time, like those of old, have used the church as a launching pad for their business and for their gain. I've seen this happen personally with people who were in pyramidal type endeavors, trying to recruit other people to come in on their business. The church is not a business for those seeking to make a profit. It is not the place. God is not pleased with such behavior. And all those who use it as such will stand before the judgment of God. Whether they're begging for money to be sent to them or whether they're trying to make it through some kind of business endeavor. Isaiah 56 verse 7. These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Jeremiah 7 verse 11. Has this house which is called by my name become a den of robbers for your, before your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. This is nothing new. That people use the church to try to have personal gain in some fashion or another, whether by leadership or by others. And I think this scene that we see here and Jesus' attitude towards it is seen more clearly and more understood if we grasp the meaning of the word temple. He went to the temple. Now, there are two words in the Greek language for the word temple. One is the word hieron. The other is the word hieros. They are very close to one another, but they mean something different. The first word hieron means a sanctuary or a temple as a building for the place of worship of a deity. <clears throat> this word was used of the of the Roman temples that housed the pagan gods of the day. This word is used in Acts chapter 19, verse 27, to speak of the temple of Artemis or the temple of Diana. The second word is the word hieros. Hieros is akin to hieron, but it means that which is pertinent to the tran- to transcendent purity that which is holy in the service of the temple not the temple itself that's a great distinction because i'll say to my wife often i'm going to go down to the church and she knows what i mean i'm coming down here to the building but when i get here the church is Not the church. This building's not the church. The church is here today. You're the church.
And so when we speak of going to church, I'm going to go to church this morning. We're not talking about coming to a building and uh, that's that's this building is really nothing. It's just a roof over our heads. We're talking about what the church does. Why does the church come here? Why do we gather? We gather to worship and show our reverence for God and and do those things that we're commanded to do in worship to our God. That's what this word is when Jesus went to the temple. That's why he reacted the way he did. J.C. Ryle has an appropriate statement on this point. He says, I am inclined to see in this visit of our Lord to the temple at his first appearance in Jerusalem after beginning his ministry, a partial though very imperfect fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy. The Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Malachi 3.1 While the Jewish nation was expecting the appearance of a conquering Messiah with great power and great glory, The true Messiah suddenly appeared in the temple and declared his presence not by exhibiting temporal power, but by insisting on a greater purity. A greater purity in the temple worship as the very first thing which the nation needed. Like many Old Testament prophecies about Messiah... The words are purposefully intended to have a double fulfillment. A partial one at the Messiah's first coming to suffer and a complete one at the Messiah's second coming to reign. So what is he talking about? This is why Jesus was outraged. This is why he was incensed at what he saw happening in the place of worship, his father's house. Instead of coming in and destroying it, he cleansed it. When the Son of God came, became a man, and entered into sinful humanity, lived with sinners, he could have destroyed us all. But he didn't. He cleansed us instead. And so he drives out the filth and the graft of men seeking to bring reverence and holiness that God deserves. It teaches us that when we come to worship, we should leave behind the worries and the distractions that this life produces and find ourselves trusting in the Savior to meet our needs. And our greatest needs are not the physical ones. Our greatest needs are the spiritual ones. What happens next seems uncharacteristic of the Lord. We'll talk about that next week. And what took place as a result. All right. Thank you so much. Let me make a couple of announcements. (coughs) 